Oh yeah, the uh, the old full moon logo done on film with a little vignetting at the bottom there. Didn't like that, but uh, it's pretty cool back in the day. It's all film, no CGI. I'm Charles Band, and I'm doing this uh, audio commentary for you guys today. And uh, it's especially meaningful to me why I wanted to do this um, just myself, really. Of course, the director's no longer with us, Dave Allen. Otherwise, he'd be sitting here and we'd be... Well, actually, he, I wouldn't be sitting here. He'd be sitting here and talking about his movie. But in lieu of Dave still being with us, uh, I thought it was appropriate that I talk about Puppet Master 2 and um, where things were at at Full Moon back in the day because it was very much the beginning of Full Moon and uh, my relationship with Dave. So we'll get into all that, but uh, this is a cool scene. You know, I, I, I love the things that we were able to do back in the early 90s when we had some more money and we had a, you know, some, uh, a couple sound stages and we had just more things to work with. You know, the business got really tough and now things are getting a little better. So I'm, as we speak today, I'm recording this on the 16th of July, 2012 about to start shooting Puppet Master 10 or Puppet Master X, Axis Rising. And I'm excited about that because it's the first Puppet Master uh, I'll have directed. I invented the series, I've stuck close to it over 22 years, but this is a great shot. I, I was there and so happy uh, to see this. And these are the type of shots that are not so easy to do today. You know, the tendency is to do a lot of CGI, which I hate, I'm not CGI guy. And this was all in camera, you know? This was it, there was no going back. And um, that's how we did it. And, uh, you know, tricky, because each puppet required probably two puppeteers. So I think there were six puppets there in those hands, so it was probably like 10, 12 people just puppeteering that one shot. Anyway, a um, little bit of history here. Uh, Dave Allen and I, uh, Dave who directed this movie and who just did some great, great stop-motion animation shots. I mean, he really co-invented uh, the puppets. I mean, it was my idea and I came to him with early sketches, but he and his team really brought them to life and gave them a lot of character and dimension. And uh, Dave and I go back to the 70s, um, where I knew of Dave's work and I needed someone to do some animation for a movie I made called Laser Blast. And uh, I met Dave and he was just this very unique, wonderful character and he had a studio, he was doing some commercial work, like for the Pillsbury Doughboy and other stuff. And, uh, but he was a big film guy and uh, protege of Ray Harryhausen. There he is, Dave Allen Productions, poor Dave. Uh. Anyway, we got in business and he did some great shots for Laser Blast, which is primarily what people remember, I'm sure. And uh, hey, my brother's music, all right, very, very much uh, sewn into the fabric of the Puppet Master films for sure. But um, anyway, Dave and I did some work over the years, I'll talk more about it, but uh, after the first Puppet Master was such a success and we were just beginning our business with uh, Paramount, they said, you've got to make more of these. You've got to make another Puppet Master. And um, I thought, well, you know, and Dave was really anxious to direct. He had a big project in mind that he wanted to uh, do, you know, um, called The Primevals, which we actually shot and one day we'll finish. But not so much as a warm-up, but to give him the experience and uh, certainly to get a lot of the cool shots that I know we would have 
God, no matter what, with Dave's stop-motion talent. I thought, you know, let's let Dave direct this thing. He didn't have a lot of directing experience, but I thought we'd get some real magic, which I think we have in this film. You know, I was noticing uh, one of the last few credits on the main credits are to uh, David Dakota and John Schuweiler. Well, uh, ironically and interestingly enough, uh, John is back producing uh, for Full Moon. Uh, he's, uh, he, we just did the Zombies vs. Strippers, which, uh, to put it mildly, was a hoot. And now we are about to start shooting Puppet Master X, Axis Rising, which is the 10th Puppet Master film in the series, and John is producing again. So uh, hopefully we'll be hanging out a while and John will stay on board. He's, he's very, very talented and uh, brings a lot of expertise, not to mention history, into... Uh, into these films, and of course Dave Dakota, who is a very close friend, Dave and I go back many years, back to the Empire days, and um, Dave and John uh, co-produced Puppet Master 2, and of course Dave went on to direct Puppet Master 3, which uh, is considered by some to be the better Puppet Master, at least so far. <laughs> we'll see about Puppet Master Axis Rising. And um, yeah, that's a, a film that will be out for uh, basically for Halloween 2012. It's funny, right now that seems like a little ways away, and I know people are going to be watching this movie and listening to this audio commentary in five or ten years and think, oh, man, way back in 2012. But that's where we are. That's where I am right now recording this. And um, I have to say the effort of getting our early movies on Blu-ray. It's taken forever. You know, a lot of the fans, a lot of you guys write in and say, hey, why don't you, uh, what's wrong with you guys? You know, get your movies on Blu-ray. And what are you waiting for? Get the early full moon movies on Blu-ray. And, you know, so many things the fans want, I'd, I'd love to do, but it's like anything else in life. It's a function of money. You know, it's expensive. You have to go back to the 35 millimeter negatives. You have to do these HD transfers. You got to do all this color correction. You got to clean up any dirt and spots and whatever is on those negatives after 20, 25 years. And uh, it took a while to really save up the dough to be able to go and do what we're doing now, which is the plan is until we either run out of movies or run out of money. The plan is to release two uh, Blu-ray movies a month starting in uh, September of 2012 with Puppet Master 2 and 3, which, by the way, I've seen, and they, they just look fantastic. I've never seen these movies look this good. And I mean, I shot them. I was there to see the uh, answer print on a big screen. But somehow with these transfers and the way uh, the color correction is being done, which is far superior than what we were able to do back in the day on a, on a, on a print. Um, well, by now you've either seen it or you're watching it because while well, you're listening to this audio commentary. But for those of you, including myself, who've only seen for 20 odd years the SD transfers, you know, plain old uh, transfers that look by, by, by this standard just murky and muddy and the framing is wrong. It's such a quantum leap better. I'm, I'm really impressed and, uh, and proud. It's like, yeah, we, we made these things. Look how good they are. And I haven't seen them look this good ever. So um, it's exciting to see this happening and see movies like, well, next case will be Puppet Master 4 and 5 and the next two subspecies and Dollman and Demonic Toys and Pit and the Pendulum and Castle Freak. And I think we got about three years' worth of the early movies at the rate of two a month. 
that will be coming your way. So that's that's pretty cool. So, um, man, there's just so much history. It was uh, really interesting watching Dave work. Um, again, I sure wish he was here. He was such a good spirit and such a talented guy. You know, one of Dave's many talents was finding a way very economically to do almost the impossible. And the tools he had to work with by today's standards are just, you know, just freaking Stone Age. I mean, uh, today there's so much that can be manipulated um, in CGI, and there's so many things that, you know, even I'm fooled by because you'll go, you know, to see a big movie. And, you know, there's obvious CGI stuff. We, we, all, we can all see what it is. You got, you know, characters brought to life and creatures and to me most of it looks pretty fake because they look cartoony but that's my taste but there's a lot of very invisible cgi work you know that is kind of amazing where you can erase a building or change a sign or put a blink in the eye of a, of a animatronic puppet or you know there's an endless list of things that you can do in a very subtle way with cgi which i actually um enjoy that that part is cool it's the complete fabrication of a character or creature that um, even though sometimes it's pretty amazing what they can do and they spend millions of dollars, it still usually doesn't feel real. Um, also because the actors are, you know, they're fighting an imaginary creature, they're fighting against the blue screen or a green screen or some big hanging log that they're fighting or, you know, striking their swords at. So it's that kind of thing where where the, the reality isn't quite there. And when you shoot, as we do, with uh, in our little meager budgeted films, you shoot your puppets and creatures and dolls, you know, live action. They're there, and the actors can see them, and um, we can see them. And even though there's still some trickery, and you know, we still... Well, in the case of Dave, Dave was the master at the stop-motion shots, and they probably look a little arcane right now. You know, there are people who can look at these who don't understand them, go, oh, that looks jittery or weird or not so real, but they had a fantasy reality, which I love, and that's what turned me on and pulled me into this world of small, inanimate creatures coming to life. And even though they may move in a jerky way sometimes, they're still real, they're still three-dimensional characters that are in the scene, even though they may be in front of a screen or in front of a rear-view projection. They're not uh, a cartoon, and, and not to demean any of the amazing work that's being done today um, in CGI, but but it's still cartoony to me. So anyway, Dave Allen was just, um, no, there's the Bodega Bay and oh my God. So quick story on how that shot works. And this was the, just again, part of the magic of what Dave Allen was able to do. So the way we pulled it off, it's called a hanging miniature and of course, there is no Bodega Bay, even though it sounds like by now there should be one somewhere on the coast of California. And um, so what Dave did is we built a miniature. It wasn't so miniature. It was probably the size of um, like a big refrigerator. And that was the model, the actual Bodega Bay Inn model that you just saw in the shot a, a minute or so ago. And it was designed to be a hanging miniature, which literally, it, that's what it is you, you you hang the miniature at a certain distance from the camera in between your shot or your background or the action and it becomes almost a seamless effect shot where it's all in uh, camera it's not com <clears throat> composited in later it's not um 
obviously a CGI trick. CGI didn't exist back then. So for Dave Allen and his team to get that one shot, I remember because he actually did that shot. We didn't need to send a crew out there. He had an old Mitchell, probably from the 40s, a Mitchell camera, which was an old 35 millimeter camera, probably weighed half a ton. I mean, this was a gargantuous, very precision, but you know, at that time, probably 50 year old camera that he would do certain shots with. So he dragged that camera out there. He dragged the miniature out there, which again, fit in the flatbed is a big miniature. And they found some way to hang it. I'm not sure how they did that. I wasn't out there. And they hung it right in front of the camera, in front of a cliff somewhere on the coast he found that would make some kind of logistical sense. So, you know, if you look at it carefully, you know, it's there's no jitter, but you could, if you really still frame that shot, you can see how it probably doesn't blend as great as you would like, but there was no ability back then to do any blending. You had to pick, you know, the right uh, background and, and have the right miniature and, um, you know, frame it the right way. This is the same way that we did some shots later on that Dave was involved with and other effects guys that are forced perspective shots where you can literally make people appear to be tiny and you get those shots in frame. And that's just the way you position people in front of the camera in relation to a background. So, you know, when you can get a shot today, again, it means less because of the ease of the uh, compositing and the way CGI works. But if you can get those shots back in the day, they were golden because first they didn't cost any more money. You didn't have to composite or go to an optical house and spend lots of money to, to composite these shots. And then they always look the best because they're all in one piece of negative. You know, there was no cutting or jittery motion where the monster or the large building or whatever the effect is as it sits in the background jitters just a little bit that to the trained eye you can kind of see, oh, there's actually, they, they don't, they're not really hooked together. They're somehow one's floating on top of the other. So anyway, yeah, so Dave took out that miniature and um, hung it somewhere on the, on the California coast and shot those several shots, and those are the ones we've used in the early Puppet Master films, and they are the Bodega Bay Inn. Oh, here we are with the Toulon Grave. You know, as you guys know, the first Toulon was played by the wonderful uh, William Hickey, who then passed away, and um, he was just a very wonderful guy, a nice fellow, we, we hung out a little bit, and he had a a disease, I forget what it was called, but it's something where he aged, he, he physically aged uh, beyond his years. So in Puppet Master 1, I don't know his exact age at that time, but basically in Puppet Master 1, he, um, you would imagine if you visited us on the set back in 1989, that Hickey was maybe 70. You know, he kind of looked 70, early 70s. And I think he was like in his early 50s. I mean, he was a lot younger than, um, than what, he is able to, what he looked like, which is, of course, the opposite of what you want if you're an actor in Hollywood. Yeah, so, um, yeah, this is such a strange little movie. You know, Dave had a strange take on these people, and I really wanted him to, you know, be able to cast the film and, and, and really direct the movie. I mean, it's got its, uh, I think, some of its casting shortcomings, but, you know, all in all, it plays pretty well. But, boy, when those effects, they, they were the best stop-motion effects in the entire series because, well, Dave was making his own movie, and he wanted the, you know, the, the, their shots, like when Blade jumped off the, jumps off the bed and comes swishing his blade in camera, 
you know, uh, trying to cut up poor, poor Charlie Spradling. And by the way, Charlie Spradling, who we'll probably come to in a minute, uh, you guys probably know, um, did several movies for me. And the one that uh, I remember most fondly is she did a movie called Meridian. Now Meridian's going to be <clears throat> one of the, hopefully in the first 10 or 15, there she is for a moment. Um, it's going to be one of the, um, in the first or second group of, uh, of movies we're, we're, we're releasing on Blu-ray. Again, beautifully shot by Mac Alberg, who did so many of these early Full Moon films for me and many of the Empire films before Full Moon. And, um, you know, I was excited to make a <clears throat> Harlequin-esque Beauty and the Beast type film. The only one I've made, actually, and we shot it in Italy and starred Sherilyn Fenn. There's beautiful uh, Charlie Spradley. Oop, she's gone. Smoking a cigarette. But um, I'm sure most of you have seen Meridian. If not, you should definitely see it. And if you want to see it, maybe wait till uh, it's out on Blu-ray. But um, Sherilyn and Charlie, both extremely beautiful, uh, somewhat uh, exposed in the movie. Um, everyone got along well. We shot at a real castle. And we lived in the castle, you know, cast and crew. And, uh, you know, it was large, so we would get up in the morning and go either upstairs or downstairs and shoot our scenes. But um, the Italian crew, most of them were Italian, were really hot for Cheryl and Fenn and really, really hot for Charlie's Pradlings. Now, um, talking about William Hickey, of course, the first puppet master, and then we had this gentleman who did a wonderful job, and I don't know why we didn't use him again, but um, well, I know why, because the opportunity to use a Guy Rolfe for Puppet Master 3, 4, and 5 uh, came up. Uh, Guy had done a movie for me, of course, most well-known for Dr. Sardonicus, made many, many years ago. But Guy did a movie for me in the 80s when I had a company called Empire called Dolls, and he's just so wonderful. I thought, oh my God, what a fantastic choice for, for Andre Toulon. And we pulled him in and um, yeah, so I'm, you know, again, I, I, if my memory does not fail me, uh, Puppet Master 3, 4, and 5 were the Guy Rolfe Puppet Masters and he was absolutely terrific and gave a lot of charm and depth and uh, pathos to the character. And then, uh, well, the movie's changed, of course, and now we're, we're on a whole new tangent as to, uh, um, you know, where we're taking these puppets, because uh, aside from the fact that Guy Rolfe is no longer with us, uh, it makes more sense in the stories we want to tell that the puppets fall into the hands of new characters and, and uh, people who will either control them, you know, and give them, uh, you know, good people or bad people, because, you know, one of the early copy lines is when good puppets turn bad, and of course you can turn that around when bad puppets turn good. They were always, you know, the disciples of whoever controlled them. And, uh, you know, who knew at the time we were going to make so many of these films over, you know, 22 years? I sure would have designed it a little differently, and, you know, we can all, we all want to go back and we could and change things. But, you know, the body of, the wor of, of, of work really speaks for itself, and I think a lot of the Puppet Master films are very well done, and I'm really excited about Puppet Master Axis Rising, because I think it has, you know, other than Guy Rolfe, who would have been wonderful to have back <laughs> if we could find a way to do that. I mean, it has all the original classic puppets um, really retooled to be 
as close to, if not spot on, the originals as possible. We have four new evil puppets we're introducing. It's, it takes place during World War II, which is just a fascinating era. We have uh, Chinese dudes, uh, Japanese dudes, Nazis. Uh, you know, it's, it's got it. It has it all, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping it'll be one of the better ones. Um, plus, we have a little more money to make it. Again, we don't have the budgets we had in the early 90s, but we definitely have a few more days and a few more dollars, which is exciting. And now we go into all this hocus-pocus stuff. <laughs> This definitely was a strange little tale. Um, yeah, I was thinking about uh, Sherilyn Fenn and Charlie, Charlie Spradling and the other movies that we shot at this castle. Uh, we shot, of course, the two Stuart Gordon movies we're about to release soon on Blu-ray. We shot The Pit and the Pendulum with Lance Hendrickson and Oliver Reed, and that was a hell of an experience, one of Stuart Gordon's wonderful films and another Stuart Gordon film called Castle Freak uh, with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton uh, both of those films shot at the castle same castle where we shot Meridian and many years later a few years ago actually we shot two more films uh, a picture I directed called Skullheads with uh, Robin Sidney who I think was just amazing in the movie and I'm really proud of it it's one of those films that just hasn't found the audience yet I think people one day will rediscover it Maybe the artwork needs to be changed. Maybe it didn't pull people in because the art wasn't right. But I think it's a really well-crafted, very well-acted film. And we also shot Demonic Toys 2 there um, not too long ago. So if I'm not mistaken, I think those are the five films shot over 20-odd years at this castle. But um, I guess winding back to Puppet Master. Yeah, what was happening is Puppet Master, the first one, uh, prior to that film, I had a company called Empire. And, um, you know, we made pictures like Ghoulies and Reanimator and From Beyond and Dolls and Troll and Eliminators. It was a great run. It was, you know, this was pretty much 83 through 89. And this is back in the day where, um, you know, we still would be able to do a small theatrical release for these films. The, the, it was still practical to do this. Today, of course... And it's really ironic, when I started, few and far between were the movies that were in this genre, were horror, sci-fi, fantasy, you know, the major studios were not making those movies. And when Star Wars came along, that kind of changed everything. But it was a slow, gradual change. It wasn't like the next year after Star Wars, there were 30, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, action movies, or maybe two or three. But over these many years, today, if you look at just this year, you know, what are the the big, huge tentpole films. They're all essentially B-movies made with $200 million budgets, whether they were films like John uh, Jack Carter uh, or, or, you know, The Avengers, which is a comic book come to life, or, again, Spider-Man. Um, you know, I mean, all these movies are pictures that were the sort of movies that I was making and before me, Roger Corman was making, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and Roger in the 60s because uh, there was an appetite for these films and the studios weren't making them. And that's all different now. So uh, probably the last stretch of time where you could release a movie theatrically in some number of theaters and not get killed and not have to spend, uh, you know, so much money that it was a, you know, it was a horrible crapshoot. Probably ended by the mid-80s. You know, I was there at the tail end. I started making uh, movies... 
like 75, 74, 75. And probably for seven, eight years after that, there was still a business where, well, when I started, there was no video, there was no internet, there was no pay-per-view. I mean, it's inconceivable to young people today that if you loved any kind of movie, especially genre films, first, you could never see movies at will, at, you know, a whim. You could go find them today anywhere. Back in the day, the only way you could see a movie was in the theater. And if it was an older movie, one you missed, there, there, you had to go to a revival house or some local movie theater that screened some of the old films. And they were few and far between, for sure. Or sometimes they would play on late night TV, but they'd be all cut up because of bizarre censorship. So you had really no chance if you were in love with these kind of movies and you were around, even in the 70s, there's nothing you could do to see films you wanted to see, let alone see them exactly when, it, you, when you wanted to see them. Um, that all changed when video started exploding at the end of the 70s, and I was there. And, um, but still, even with the video explosion that was, it took some years to really, really get strong, we could still release movies theatrically, and I did, and make a few bucks, you know, so whether it was the late 70s or movies like Crash and Laser Blast and Tourist Trap with Chuck Connors, or the early 80s with movies like Ghoulies, a movie I made that I sold to Universal called Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, um, you know, again, Reanimator from Beyond, Troll. These were all movies that had a theatrical release. We released them theatrically, sometimes in as few as 25, 30, 40 theaters, and a number of times upwards to 1,000 theaters, which Today, you wouldn't have a chance because back then you could, you know, there was still not that many of these movies being released and people showed up. You didn't have to spend tons of money in media, so you could you know, have a chance of making some money or at least breaking even and then your video revenue would, would be, you know, stronger because you uh, had exposed the movie more. Uh, anyway, today all that's, that's been over with for many, many years. Today. Uh, a, the movie's got to be much more substantial to stand a shot, you know, unless you have a fluky movie like Paranormal Activity. But then again, it took Paramount with all its muscle and, and a brilliant campaign to get Paranormal Activity out theatrically and for it to make so much money. But those are the exceptions, you know. The, the, the truth is we, we're in a world where just about every big movie is exactly the kind of movies we've been making that are genre films and that, you know, our budgets are like the... Uh, you know, the cappuccino budget on a big tentpole Hollywood movie. I mean, we make movies as, as cleverly as we can, but the budgets are, you know, forget an, you know, an even playing field. You know, we're spending, you know, 0.1, I mean, whatever it is, a tiny fraction of the sort of budgets, you know, and the days. I just read that um, they just wrapped The Hobbit, and I think I remember reading that their last day was their 256th day. I mean, that, first, that's a lifetime, and we're shooting an average of seven, eight days on our movies. That's what we get. That's what we can afford. So, you know, it's a whole different world, for sure. This is looking good. I'm just looking forward to uh, some of those classic, iconic puppet attacks, which... And when we do those reels, we want to show how cool these puppets are. Most of those shots do come from Puppet Master 2, Dave's movie. What is this thing? It's got to be subject to physical laws. That's great.
actually, if I'm looking at him, that's great. So Claude Rains, the Invisible Man, that was the model for this dude. I am <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. I mean, that would be kind of shocking that some guy arrives at your hotel or at your gathering looking like that. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, Charlie Spratling, beautiful girl. Just recently, and I've been doing all these road shows, a lot of you I'm sure I've met. Um, I don't do too many anymore because, well, because I'm just too busy making movies. You know, we're finally now ramped up to a movie every month, which is sort of a dream. But, you know, be careful what you dream about or what you wish for because uh, suddenly it's like, oh, my God, this is uh, fun, but this is pretty damn exhausting. But in the last six months, we've actually shot six movies, and we're going to try to keep it up, try to try to be doing that. But... Uh, Prior to things heating up again for Full Moon, we were making two or three movies a year, and I had the time to go out on the road. And um, I think over a seven-year period, I, I, well, I know I've been to over 100 cities. I've been to, I've had 100 stops. I mean, I visited certain cities twice and three times, like Dallas. But it was such a great experience, um, truly a great experience for me, a lifetime experience going out and meeting all the people, all of you people are listening to this who enjoy these movies because, you know, few people in Hollywood get the opportunity to do this. It's not that they, that they wouldn't want to do it. I mean, I think anyone would be thrilled to go out there and talk to people who love their films. But, you know, I'm, I guess, unique in that I've made and I've stuck to one genre of films for all these many years. I've been making movies and I, I still feel like I'm just, you know, getting started. I don't think I've even hit my halfway mark. But um, I know I've been making movies for a while, and I've made over 300 films, which is, is kind of weird. And um, because of that, and because I'm known for a certain genre, it was easier for me to organize a tour, uh, which we kind of just invented. It, you know, there was no roadmap. I mean, no one else has ever done it before. But because I'm known for this genre, and there's so many creatures and characters and puppets and dolls and movies that kind of all fit together, um, it was easier for me to do this because, you know, other filmmakers who are prolific, maybe not as prolific, but they make movies. Uh, I mean, Roger Corman, who I love, he's just such a great guy, but he makes movies and has made movies in all genres, you know, uh, westerns and, you know, romances and sci-fi and horror and thrillers. And so not that his audience maybe wouldn't show up for some kind of a tour, but you know, it's a diverse audience. You know, I run into people who either love horror movies and have seen my movies or not into horror movies and have never seen my films. And, and uh, so I'm in a, in a more restricted sort of subgenre. But at least I have, you know, a lot of people like these movies and they know of my work or they've seen my movies over the years. It happens a lot where people see these films and only recently because of the Internet and maybe the roadshow and some press only recently do have some of these people um, pieced it all together and figured out, whoa, all these movies I kind of like, there's a common denominator, this weirdo Charlie Band, he's made these films or he's produced them or directed them. So that audience has kind of found me in a way. So some years ago when things were really bleak in terms of you know not being able to make the volume of movies I wanted to make and money was really difficult, I thought, well, there's no way to promote these films. You know, there's no real way that, I mean, if we had lots of money, we'd run TV ads and do all that stuff. But that's a sure-fired way to go out of business because there's no way to get a return.
So I thought, well, you know, how else do people do it? How do you <clears throat> promote um, something like a feature film if there's no traditional media dollars? You know, you can't buy print ads or you can't buy TV spots. And then I was thinking, well, you know, how does a rock and roll band do it? Well, they go on the road and they tour. And whether they make a few bucks or break even, at least they're exposing their work in front of their audience, you know. And I thought, wow, now how do I do that, turn that into something that works for me and for Full Moon and for my, my body of work, for my films? And that's when slowly the idea of this roadshow, the Full Moon Horror Roadshow, came together. And I thought, well, it, it could be just a, a weird variety show. And I'll say, what shot is this? That doesn't even look very good. Oh, no, I said, okay, well, that's great. Sorry, I thought it was like a bad moonshot. <laughs> oh, this is an awesome scene. Yeah, we got to find a way to bring Torch back. You know, we're trying to stay somewhat faithful to the chronology of these films. So I'm not sure how we're going to do that, but Torch is one of my favorite characters. And, uh, well, not to mention Leech Woman. Oh, here's a funny story, and I'm going to get back to uh, the roadshow. So we made Puppet Master 1, and it did very, very well. And the Paramount people were like, oh, my God, we need more of this. We need more of these. you got to make another one right away. And... Um, so we dreamt up the concept for Puppet Master 2, and we were putting it together. And we had a meeting. At, we, had, we had, like, these monthly meetings at Paramount. It was usually me and, like, one other guy, because my whole staff was, like, seven people. And the Paramount side, there were, like, a dozen of them. It was a huge conference room, and there, were, there had to have been at least 10 or 12. There's Leech Woman. This, my story's about Leech Woman. <laughs> she is nasty. Nasty, nasty. But anyway... The Paramount guy said, listen, we want you to keep making Puppet Master movies, but you have to do something. I go, what? you got to kill off Leech Woman. I go, what do you mean? She's just too gross. She's just not good. I mean, I know you love her, and you don't like this sort of idea, I'm sure, but you got to get rid of her. You know, if we're going to do more Puppet Masters and more movies together, she's got to die. So that's why Leech Woman sort of disappeared for a while. She's back now, but uh, Paramount folk did not like her. And, you know, when you really think of it, back 22 years ago or however long it's been, that first Puppet Master, there's some pretty nasty scenes with old Leech Woman, which uh, I thought were great, but were a little, a little much at the time. See, this is a scene that this is so perfectly Dave Allen. You know, Dave, you know, he storyboarded these scenes. He didn't wing anything, and he was very, very meticulous and very conscious of every single shot. So he would storyboard these shows. And um, I still have some of them. They're, they're awesome. But uh, yeah, every one of these shots very well planned out. And you have to, especially with stop-motion animation. I mean, that's a rod puppet shot. A lot of these are. But uh, when you do stop-motion, it's a very time-consuming deal. This isn't a, um, you know, kind of a quick deal, wing it situation. Because I remember back in the day, for a five-second shot, it would take about a week them to animate that shot one frame at a time and you know we doubled up as best as we could but if there were 20 stop-motion shots in one movie that was a lot because that represented about you know four or five months of work not to mention the building of the stop-motion puppets you know and all the work you know that involved in compositing and you know blending them into the scene so i don't know technically how many stop-motion shots are in puppet master 2 i'm sure someone can figure it out but they're sure great when you see them. <laughs>
I'm just waiting for Torch to arrive here. She's so sad about her little doll being broken up. That's a, that shot again is a uh, that's a rod shot. As cool as it is, I'm waiting for a stop motion shot. That's pretty cool. Again, that's just a a rod shot. Oh, so sad. Bummer. Total bummer. That was Paramount's doing. I blame them. Blame them. I'm going to talk about it in a moment as soon as we see a stop motion shot. But uh, back to the road show. So it just made sense for me to take some sort of a variety type show on the road and show clips of the movies and talk about the upcoming films and how things were done and have a guest saw. Oh, there he is. Torch is so freaking awesome. I can't even talk over this moment. And this was all real stuff. This was, you know, again, CGI today, you can put in a bunch of flame. We had a freaking flamethrower. We had a fire marshal. We had all the things you can imagine. That's the real deal. And then, you know, we had a gal in a bodysuit. You know, that's the real deal. Everything organic, he is awesome. Gotta bring him back for sure. But you know, this was not easy to do and definitely not inexpensive. Today it'd be even more expensive, but today you can get, see the problem with CGI is that it's not done very sparingly. Even in these kind of shots where you're not animating a, a creature, it can look real hokey. You can see, certainly CGI blood is real easy to see. And um, that is really nasty. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's the Invisible Man again. So the idea of the roadshow basically was, let's put on an act for two hours and um, have some fun and go to city to city and bring merchandise and hopefully sell some and cover our costs, which, by the way, we never did. Seven years, 100-plus cities. And... Um, I mean, the, the goodwill and the, you know, spreading the full moon word, and uh, that was priceless. So I don't regret one day of, uh, oh, look how sad he is. Yeah, we, we're, we've sculpted and we've stayed very true to the original um, Chester. So when you eventually see Puppet Master Axis rising, you'll see, of course, all three of his faces exactly the way they used to be, well represented. And, um, and used correctly, you know, the way we've drafted the script. So, um, but uh, anyway, back to the road show. I thought, okay, we, we, we're going to take this thing on tour. And uh, it grew over the years, but, you know, we had cities where, and this was only internet. I mean, we, you know, obviously didn't spend lots of money promoting it. We just let people know virally. You know, occasionally we'd run an ad in a city or two or get some local people to help. A lot of the fans help, you know, spread the word and distribute sell sheets and do all that good stuff. But um, generally speaking, it was just a, a word of mouth promotion. 
And I would say that we probably average four or 500 people a city. That's a lot of people who, you know, and, and these were not like weekend nights necessarily. I mean, we did have a Saturday and Sunday night, but we had Monday nights and Wednesday nights and Thursday nights. And I was so grateful to be going to some of these places where I'd never been before. And suddenly there's 400 people there and they're all fans. And so the shows were a lot of fun. I mean, for those of you who, have, who haven't seen them, I, you know, I would, after some crazy footage, uh, sort of introducing Full Moon, I would come out and talk to everyone. I'd tell all sorts of stories, you know, I, I tried to vary them as best as I could, but some of the better stories were stories about working with Gary Busey, who was, uh, who is just a super talented wild man, and, uh, you know, he's our evil cookie and the ginger dead man, and, uh, so I'll talk about Busey, I'll talk about people like Klaus Kinski going back 25 years, a movie we did called Crawl Space, Chuck Connors, of course, you know, Demi Moore and Helen Hunt and Tim Thomerson. And so I, I would talk in anecdotes and fun stories, and then we would have all sorts of crazy stuff. We'd have, of course, the guest celebrity would be there, and whoever that was would come on stage. It was great a couple of times. We had William Shatner come, uh, come up. And that was a lot of fun talking to Bill, and we had a great show with him in Dallas some years ago. And then uh, again, we would show clips, things people had never seen, and there was always uh, several promotions that involved, um, well, involved people coming up on stage and being part of the act. I, you know, I wanted to do some interactive stuff. I didn't want it to just be, you know, me talking or celebrity type people talking and clips. I wanted the audience to be involved. So we did many skits over the years, but they were usually the highlight of the evening. And of course, as I little by little came to learn what the fans really wanted, um, you know, they wanted some blood and guts on stage and gore and crazy stuff, and they wanted to see boobies. I don't know what else to say. They wanted to see girls take their tops off. Well, now, that was a great stop-motion animation shot. See, that's a shot that I wish we could do. I wish Dave was around. I wish we could find another Dave Allen. They don't exist anymore because that's really hard to do, just to see Pinhead walk into the puppet case. That was a great shot. But, um, yeah, so back to the road show, we had all sorts of uh, fun deals that we did, and uh, you know, sometimes we had as many as 15 or 20 people on stage, and we, we, we brought a, a guillotine uh, with us on one of the tours to 20 cities, and we would chop people's heads off. That was fun, kind of an Alice Cooper moment there. But, um, we would also, uh, I would sort of invent on uh, a spur of the moment these sort of faux scenes from horror movies. And we would usually have a, you know, a, a monster. Somebody would play the monster. They'd be like GQ dude, some, you know, good looking guy. And of course, there would be always the hot chick or more than one hot chicks. And, um, and I would cast them. I would say, okay, uh, in the audience, everybody, anybody who wants to play the monster, come on up here. And, you know, sure enough, five, 10, sometimes 20. Big dudes would come up, sometimes chicks, and I would uh, do a little interview, and, and I told the audience, you know, we... Uh... Now, by the way, this scene, I have to stop my story. This is such a cool scene. This was sort of an explanation, more visual than anything else, on how Andre Toulon got his secret, going back, you know, the turn of the century to uh, ancient Egypt. And I love the way it, it, the, the artwork, and that's the Mephisto character, and I love the way it transitions um, and the music. It's just a magical moment. And there's a character in this scene uh, called the Humunculus, and he's only on screen for, what, 30 seconds. Well, there's Mephisto, and of course Mephisto 
is another puppet that we, like all the main puppets, we built uh, replicas of. So, uh, you know, if you guys go to fullmoondirect.com and you want to get your own Mephisto, we, we wanted to, little by little, make all these characters available, you know, one-to-one -one scale, really cool, you know, hand-sewn costumes. But then just recently I thought, well, you know, even though he only appeared for a heartbeat, there's this really great homunculus, homunculus character, which is going to come up pretty soon, that we should bring to life. So we've actually done some of those. So even he's now available in super limited quality, uh, quantity, very high quality. Now that's so cool. Again, seems simple. I remember I was doing that. Not easy. Not easy, because, you know, you're on a soundstage and you're burning stuff up and then people got to jump in with fire extinguishers. And... But this pretty well tells the story of uh, how it all began. I'm just waiting for the scene with the homunculus, because it's one of my favorites. Okay, I think it's uh, maybe coming up. But, you know, again, when you think of it and you watch this scene here, Dave Allen, how bless his soul, was, um, well, again, was a protege of Ray Harryhausen, a huge fan of, you know, going back to, uh, you know, well, King Kong and then, you know, all the Harryhausen films in the 60s and 70s. And uh, this whole little sequence here reminds me so much of a Harryhausen film, you know, the way it's shot. The way this is particularly lit, the way this humunculus guy in a moment is revealed, this is right out of the Ray Harryhausen book of, of the fantastic. Now, this guy is a complete stop-motion guy. No rod puppetry here. That's a rear screen projection, beautifully done. And this guy is just an animated guy. I offer you only its secrets. I have no need of them. The artificial enchantments of your marionettes belong to the last century. Already the electrical marvels of the present cast a cruel light upon their deficiency. See those little blinks under the hand? That little shot there, that was probably three days. I mean, it's hard to believe, but every, you know, if you go frame by frame, if you can do that on your machine, especially on, well, Blu-ray, you can. You know, every one of those had to be not only positioned, but you know, the mistakes are made. You have to go back and, ugh, man, it was... Talk about the patience needed to do stop-motion animation shots, especially elaborate ones with, uh, with two or three characters. And just... Um, I, I witnessed so much of that, and I, 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 I'm very patient. I'm, I'm definitely... But I could never do that. That's beyond, I think, what mo most people can do. So back to the roadshow. Just I'll just tell you a few more things about the roadshow, which was a lot of fun. So anyway, the 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 highlight of each of evening, really, I think, other than a lot of the stories and fun and guest celebrities and clips, was getting the audience involved in different things we would invent. And one of the most fun one fun ones, one of the most interesting ones, were the um, were the sort of faux scenes that I would cast or I would have the audience help cast, and then we would do this on stage, and it would always end up with blood and guts and usually the girl or girls taking their tops off, which is always a, a victory because the audience loved that. But the way I would do it is I would say, okay, now first we're going to cast for the monster, and anybody who wants to play the monster, come on up. And sure enough, a lot of guys and some of the gals, they'd come up, 
and uh, they'd be lined up on stage, and I would literally do an interview one by one, and I would tell the audience in the beginning, I would say, um, you're going to hear from everyone for a moment, I'm going to ask them some questions, and then I'm going to go back and say their name, and you guys applaud, make uh, uh, noise, and whoever gets the loudest applause, whoever gets the most amount of noise, uh, we're going to cast, in this case, as the part of the, uh, the monster. And we would do that, and there usually was one winner. There, there never was with the girls, there were a lot of girls, there were two or three who tied, and then I found, I hope, clever ways to get them all involved in the action. But usually between the guys and the monsters, there was one clear choice, one who the audience really wanted to play the part. And sometimes they were really mean. There'd be like some like weird young dude who should not be the monster, but because he was unique and different and bizarre, they would vote for him just because they knew he'd be amusing to watch later. So we would cast the, the monster, and we would cast the hot dude, the GQ dude. Then it came for time for the girls, <clears throat> and I would say, look, this part may require a little bit of nudity, but it's going to be worth your while. First, the audience will love it. You'll never forget it. And then if you really need some extra prodding, uh, we will give you some free box sets of DVDs at the end of the show. And by then, the audience is all egging them on. Yeah, box sets, show your boobies, blah, blah, blah. And people would yell that. I'd say, guys, cool it. Don't say that. you gotta be, you got to pull people in. You can't say show your boobies. But anyway, we'd have a lot of fun. And usually, at the, and I would say in most cities, of the 15 or 20 or 10 girls who would come on, up on stage, there were usually two or three who were all the favorites. Of course, they were also the favorites because they, you know, intimated that they would show their boobies if, if the moment felt right. So, of course, they got the votes. And what I would usually do, instead of having one winner, which would have been a tragedy, I would usually cast all three. I'd change the idea of the little scene. Or I would say, okay, you girls, you're all lesbians or something. So it's really wrong but still kind of fun. And then we would do the act. Now, it depended on a number of things. Sometimes in the beginning of these shows, the audience would come in and fill a little card out with their email address, drop it in a, uh, in a coffin, and you'd have like 400 cards. And on the opposite side of the card where we asked for their email address, I would have uh, a word. The words were all different, like attack, or lesbians, or zombies, or gore. So. At the end, I would pull these cards out, or I'd have a pretty girl come up, pull these cards out, and it may turn out to be attack of the lesbian gore creatures, or, you know, five or six cards that um, created the title of this little faux uh, thing I was going to direct on stage. And that was fun, because you never knew what people would pull out, and then I'd have to improv. But by then, I already had cast, you know, I, you can only, no matter what the words are, you know, a monster, a GQ dude, and some hot chicks, and you can make your little scene work. And then I would direct the scene. And there'd be smoke and music, and sometimes I would say cut because someone was misbehaving. And uh, anyway, we would little by little, uh, oh, this is another great scene. We would little by little uh, craft together a, a fun finale to this roadshow. I'm, I'm gonna have to stop the roadshow just to watch this because this is totally cool. That's stop motion, okay? Can't do that anymore. That little walk. That was stop motion. That was not stop motion. It's <laughs> too cool. I love his bullet teeth, man. That's a awesome design. What do you think of me now? Yeah, nice little toy there.
Yeah, I remember back in the day, we had as many as six or eight torches, let's say, to accomplish the various... Oh, no, don't do that, little dude. That was a big mistake. <laughs> Run. Run. You see, we had to cut away. But we all know what happened. We got so many letters, oh my God. I remember those back before any real email. It was like 92 or something. But he was a bad kid, and little kids didn't write us the letters, just the parents. Talk about letters. All right, so the we usually get some really nice mail. I mean, for every one letter that may not be happy with us for some reason, we, we must get 100 or 200 that like the films, understand what they are, appreciate that we're trying to do the best we can with, you know, low budget. But the one, um, the one time I got actually hate mail, and I mean like piles of it, was way back around the early 80s. Uh, I made a movie called Ghoulies. And um, it was the first movie that I was going to release theatrically myself with some help from, you know, the pros. Up to then, my prior films were distributed by, by distributors, theatrical distributors who were all pretty unscrupulous. And I realized after doing a number of these films and never seeing any money except the meager advance that I was never going to make money or be able to be prolific unless um, I controlled my own destiny, did my own distribution. This is just before video really kicked in. So I'm making this movie called Ghoulies. And um, someone puts, a good friend of mine, I should say, not someone, puts the idea in my head. Charlie said, you've got to distribute this movie. You know, you, you just can't give it to someone and hope for the best and see very little dough. And plus, you, you, there's something cool about this film. You really got something special here. So he convinced me. I mean, I didn't have any real money. I mean, I had barely enough money that I raised to make the movie. But he said, uh, he said, look, if you um, you can raise this money to make the movie, you can raise some more money to get the thing distributed. And, you know, there are clever ways of doing it. It's not like you need millions of dollars. You can make 100 prints and start in New York or start in L.A. and move those prints across the country. That's what Roger Corman does all the time or did all the time. So he said, you should really give it a shot because if it works... You'll, okay, there, that's a stop-motion shot. That's great. If it works, you'll, you'll, um, you can make a lot of money. It'll fuel all your new movies. You'll, you'll, you'll have money to make pictures. If it doesn't work, then okay, so it didn't work. Not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Look at Chester. This is so sad. I'm going to have to wait a moment to tell the story. It's a really good one about ghoulies, but I just, this, this scene is so cool. You need a fluid, and we have so little left. That's great. Now, that's a, that's a rod puppetry shop. That's where the rods control the guy. And then it was much more difficult back in the day, but then you paint the rods out so you don't see them, or you hide the rods so you, they're never in the frame. You saved me from a half century of nightmares. That Infernal sleep was not the dreamless escape I'd longed for. But you brought me back to Elsa. I promised her 
Now this is again, obviously rod puppets, they're standing there. Again, rod puppet control from underneath. He's a rod puppet, no, it's not true. Well, anyway, uh, until something amazing happens. So I'm finishing this movie and I make the decision to uh, to do the theatrical release myself. So I had to get the advice from um, you know someone who really knew, not just what to spend, but what's the best city to open in. And um, my friend who, who was no longer with us, a guy named Gary Allen, a fantastic marketing guy, a phenomenal trailer editor. He edited the first Star Wars trailer, which if you were back in the day, was also a mind blower. It was like, wow, man, this movie's gonna be fantastic. Anyway, Gary says, I got this fellow in New York. He's gotta be 90. He knows distribution really, really well. He's, he's, he's such a talent. And if he likes you and he likes your movie, he can be your distributor, your guide, your sub-distributor. He'll take 10%, but you'll control everything. You'll ship the prints, you'll buy the media. And most importantly, you'll collect the money. And, and he's very, very, he's been doing it for like 60 years, so you couldn't be talking to a better guy. So I got in touch with this guy, and he sounded like a super character. I can't do the New York accent, but it was deep and thick, and he sounded like he was 20. And he said, you know, he said, we're, we're in August. I got a great, great opening late September. Big movie fell out. I can get you in 100 theaters all up and down. New York and Manhattan, and he said, you know, you have to spend some money. It's about $100,000 to make the prints, which today would be three times that. That's cheap. And he said, you need to spend about $200,000 on TV and print. you got to buy some full-page ads. you got to do buy some hundreds of TV spots. And he said, so it's about a $300,000 shot. If it works, you'll make a ton of dough. If it doesn't, yeah, you're kind of fucked, but just... Uh, he said, let me see your movie. Let me see some of your movies. Let me, before you go any further, let me, let me look at some of this, some, some of the footage. And we just finished shooting. So I was excited. I'm thinking, whoa, $300,000. That was about 100 times more than what I had in the bank. And I just finished the movie. But I sent him a couple of reels for him to look at. And um, he, this was, you know, everything took a long time. This was not some internet thing. Like, you had to ship the reels and wait for the phone call. So he calls me up. He says, kid, you, you, you got to. You got a good movie here. It's not the best I've ever seen, but I like it. I like those little those little goobers. And um, I like the title, Ghoulies. He said, you put yourself together a good campaign, some good art, a good trailer. I think you got a shot. You got to let me know real soon because I got to get these theaters booked and I can hold them, but you got to let me know for real, like in the next week or two. So now I'm thinking, oh my God, so I've got to find this money, which was virtually impossible. I've got to create a campaign, which I've never done directly myself. I had to create the art, the trailer. But, you know, I thought, look, this is a point in my life where I can't keep making these movies and giving them to distributors who steal all the dough. And my ambition was to make a lot of movies. I wanted to make, you know, ten movies a year and not one or two. So I, I decided to do it. I got lucky. I talked to some people, thought it was a good idea. I raised the money. And I went to my friend Gary, who was sort of the guy who, you know, inspired me to do all this. And I said, Gary, I know you're working for some big companies, but you know, you're an incredible trailer, dude. You should, uh, you should cut the trailer for Ghoulies. You know, you should help me with the campaign. I mean, you may as well, you know, you're, you're like uh, one of the best. And you know, you gotta do it for a price. I can't afford your crazy rates. So he did it for a price and you now Gary, best guy in the world, uh, left this uh, mortal plane a few years ago, but 
back in the day, this is around 1980. After he accepted, he said, Charlie, I've seen your movie. He said, you got to come over here. We got to brainstorm an image. We have to freaking figure out how we're going to sell this thing. I said, all right, you know, and of course, Gary was a humongous pothead, which was really not my thing, but you know, everything came attached to smoking weed. So I get over to his house. I mean, I open the door. He's like shoving a joint in my mouth. And he says, come on, dude, let's figure this thing out. Let's, let's come up with the best fucking campaign ever. So I'm there and we're <clears throat> eating not a lot of food. And we're drinking wine and he's smoking a ton of, I'm, I'm trying to be part of it. And I don't know how many hours went by, but it had to be four or five. And he goes to me, he says, I've got, I've got a great idea. Up to then, we, had, we, we didn't even talk about the movie, just sort of talking about nothing. He said, I got a great idea. I said, what is it? He said, you got to do something different. Someone, you got to do a print campaign that no one's seen before. And if you can do something different, people are going to come. It's going to pull them in because there's been hundreds of horror movies. And we can't do the same old thing. I got an idea. I said, what's your idea? He said, how about a shot of one of those ghoulies coming out of a fucking toilet? And I went, what? He says, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the copy line could be something like, they'll eat your ass. I said, dude, that's great, but no one's going to print that. What, are you crazy? A, a ghoulie coming out of a toilet, they'll eat your ass. He said, ah, yeah, we'll tone down the line. We'll tone down the line. But he said, I think, I think it's going to be a great image, and I think it's going to make your movie. So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's talented. Boy, what a stoner, man. I got to get out of here. I can't even imagine. So, you know, we said goodbye. It was late at night. I said, I'm going to mock something up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what this looks like. You got to go with me on this. You got to go. You got to go with me. I'm thinking, wow, my big shot. I've made this movie. I've raised this money. And he wants to have a ghoulie coming out of the toilet. And that sounds really bad. But then I wake up, you know, and think about it. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's kind of a crazy image. People would certainly talk about it. So he mocked it up. And I came over to his little studio the next day. And... Uh, it actually looked pretty cool, and he came up with a great line. His line, his, his toned-down line was, they'll get you in the end. So you got the ghoulie coming out of the toilet, they'll get you in the end. I said, okay, that's awesome. So now we, we actually do the photo shoot a few days later. We get the toilet, you know, we get the ghoulie, we get the ghoulie out of the toilet, we mock it up, it looks fantastic. I sent it to my guy in New York. He was excited. He said, Charlie, is the weirdest fucking campaign I've ever seen, but it's cool. People won't forget it. Hey, look at this humping. Wait, wait, I got to look at this humping for a minute. You know, I don't know how we do these scenes. I think I was there telling Dave, we got to like, I don't know if they're humping or what, but... <laughs> anyway, okay, now that is uh, not stop motion, all right. This is good stuff. So anyway, back to Ghoulies. So um, my guy loves it. He says, you know, here's the problem, Charlie. He says, number one, is this scene in the movie? I go, what scene? He says, is there a ghoulie popping out of the toilet in the movie? I go, no. He said, you got to shoot it. I say, well, why? He says, yeah. He said, people get pissed off. He said, they'll come to the theater, but you got to at least shoot that scene. Otherwise, they'll feel ripped off. I thought, oh, man, the movie was almost locked, and I got to get a crew together. And I said, okay, I can do that. He said, the other thing, he says, you got to get this approved by the MPAA. He said, unless we get an R rating, no one's going to run this thing. You got a ghoulie popping out of the toilet. It's pretty weird. He said, you got to get your trailer your TV spot, we didn't have those yet, and the image approved by the MPA. If you got that done, we're golden. I think you're going to have a huge hit. But you need that all approved. It's got to be an R rating. If not, no one's going to print it, no one's going to run it, no TV station's going to run it. As it is, it's going to be a late-night deal because you're going to get a red band. But we'll run the spots and we'll run the ads, and I think people are going to show up because it's fucking crazy. 
So, you know, I was already more than halfway pregnant. I mean, I raised the money. We're spending money. This date is approaching. The lab's about to make all these prints. So I kind of stopped the presses, which was not easy to do back in the day with film. Today, it's much easier digital. You can insert and do. And back then, you had to shoot and cut in the negative, and everyone got pissed off. You had to remix. Anyway, we went out and shot this little moment of this ghoulie popping out of the toilet. We cut it in the movie. Now the prints are being made. And I went back to my friend Gary. I said, Gary, they do love the print campaign, but we got to cut a trailer. And more importantly, we got to cut some TV spots. So he cut the spots, and they were great. And every TV spot ended with the ghoulie literally popping out of the toilet. And the voiceover was, they'll get you in the end. And that's the TV spot we had. Now I got to go romance the MPAA. Oh, there's Charlie Spradling with a little bit of, ooh, not a little bit. I forgot him. Whoa, where do those baby Huey freaking trunks come from? <laughs> that's so, like, not today. We did get a shot of her boobies. That's pretty good. I forgot about that. And they were real, so that's actually good, I think, I'm told. So when he jumped in, oh, this, this is, I mean, I have to wait two more seconds on the ghoulie story because this is truly one of the, the, the great scenes and great stop-motion animation shots coming up. And uh, I wish we could do more of these, but these, this was a Dave Allen masterwork. Poor Charlie Spradling. So hot and yet got to get bludgeoned. This guy's such a goofball. I'll spit be clean. I mean, no offense to the actor, but... <laughs> Come on. Don't take it personally. Maybe it's the wrong scene. Okay. I'm thinking of a scene where Charlie gets attacked by Blade and Blade's running at her. It's phenomenal shot. Give it one more minute here. I don't know why he's all uh, oiled up there. What? I mean, there was nobody down there when you left? Well, she said... Christ! For you guys who really know film, um, it's funny how Dave, who's very old school, shot this thing. I mean, this is a strange two-shot with a little dolly move. I mean, he has this very arcane way of covering uh, covering these scenes. I mean, it works great, but it's very, you know, today we're into so many different fancy-schmancy shots. I don't like a lot of this. I don't like to be distracted. But... Um, Today's a different story. Okay, now what's happening? Lance? Lance. Yeah, he deserved it. That's a great, now stop motion. Now here's my favorite shot. Here it comes. That shot. Now, that shot probably took Dave, I don't know how long, not this, but him leaping off the bed. That is, God, that is so tricky to do. I mean, anyone who knows this wonderful dying art of stop motion will tell you that is a tricky one because that, that, that was a background that had to be filmed at a certain rate and a certain movement in sync with that stop motion flying out. Oh, my God, tricky shot. So anyway, so now we'll get back to the Ghoulie story. So anyway, so Ghoulie, so we get these TV spots cut. I show them to my guy in New York. He says they're terrific. 
He said, but I don't think you'll ever get this past the MPA. You're asking them to approve a print ad with a, a print ad with a ghoulie coming out of a toilet and TV spots um, that end with the ghoulie coming out of the toilet. They're pretty damn violent. He said, I don't know, good luck, but you know, we have about a week here, you know, and then it's it's too late. We got the theaters booked and I know you got the prints going and if you don't get that rating, he said, I hate to tell you, but we, we have no no deal. We can't we can't release this movie. So I'm really uptight. I mean, this is the first time I've stepped out to try to elevate what I'm doing, where I'm, I'm, I'm taking this big step in the distribution. I'm responsible for other people's money. And I got this fucking crazy campaign with a ghoulie cop coming out of the toilet. So I, I wanted to do this on a personal level. I didn't want to just phone it in, which I could have done. So I called the MPA. There was a very nice lady there. And I, I, I introduced myself. And she was familiar with my work because I had made by then maybe eight or nine films. But even though I made them, <clears throat> they were all released by other distributors. She said, well, Charles, we know your movies. I said, yeah, but this is the first movie that I'm actually distributing myself, and it's my own company, and it's called Empire, and that was my new label. And I said, this means so much to me to get this rating and to be able to play these uh, commercials on TV. And I just want to personally come over and introduce myself and bring over the print, the check. She said, well, you're welcome to do that. You don't have to do that. You can send some. I said, no, no, I want to come over. Plus... I have a big favor. I know it takes a while to get these ratings, but I really need this rating like on Monday. I think it was like a Thursday. And that's when she goes, whoa, on Monday? I said, yeah, I know. And I, I don't know if there's another fee I can pay. And she said, well, look, we have a little opening over the weekend. You know, we don't usually do this. I know it's your first movie, so we'll we'll help you out here a little bit. And uh, you bring it to me and then give me a call Monday and uh, we'll see what we can do. I'm not making any promises. So... I do just that, and I, I go over there, and I bring the print and the deposit, and I meet her, and <clears throat> tried to be as nice as I could be, and I, again, sort of emphasized the fact that I really needed this rating because we had this amazing date in New York. And, um, well, I came back there Monday. I wanted to make it, I'm just superstitious. I wanted to be there myself, and I go into the office, and I'm waiting for her. She comes out, and I was really nervous thinking about this thing, and she says, Charles, you got your rating. You got your R. Well, a dramatic moment to tell this part of the story. I go, really? She says, yes. And a little bit of good news, because we kind of see the humor in this film, even though I know it's a horror film. We um, are going to give you a green band, so you can play that TV spot wherever you want. And I'm thinking, this is a terrible time to tell the story. Hang on, I got I to stop for a moment. Now that is cool. That's a real bet on flame know how we did that and where we did that. Maybe we shot that and ran. It's very cool. Oh, didn't need to see that. <laughs> anyway, um, to wrap up my ghoulie story, so... I'm so excited, and I call my guy in New York, and I say, you know, we got the rating, and we got a green band for the TV spot. He says, you're kidding me. He said, I was worried you wouldn't even get an R. A green band? A green band means you could play it anywhere, whereas a red band, you can only play it kind of late night. I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but that's more or less what my memory is. Anyway, my guy in New York was so excited. He booked the crap out of this thing. He bought hundreds of spots on all sorts of shows, everything you could imagine. The ad started running a week later, and I said, okay. I said, when do I call to know how it's going? He said, well, there's a buzz right now. He said, your picture opens on Friday. I think it was a Wednesday. 
He said, I tell you what, I've been doing this long enough. It's a science. You call me at around 6 o'clock L.A. time. It's already 9 p.m. New York time, East Coast time. I'll let you know within 10% what your movie's going to do in Manhattan, in New York. He said, I can get that close. I'll know. And I'm, I'm hoping for the best. There's a good buzz. You just uh, you just give me a call. So I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then sure enough, 6.03, actually. I remember waiting to 6.03 because 6 and a 3 equals a 9, and I'm insanely superstitious, and 9's a good number. So I called the guy at 6.03 uh, L.A. time. He goes, Charles, you have hit the jackpot. You have hit the independent jackpot. Your movie's a huge hit. There are lines around the block. We are selling out shows. The exhibitors are happy. People seem to like the movie. That campaign, that ghoulie coming out of the toilet, man, it has pulled them in here. You should be very happy. You should have a great weekend. I figure we're going to make a couple million dollars just out of the East Coast. Now, what's going to net at the end of the day is maybe 600 grand. Anyway, whatever he was saying, oh, poor Torch was like the best news ever. It was actually the best weekend ever. I, I remember going home and thinking of all the movies I was going to make. He estimated that we'd probably make between 5 and $10 million over the course of the six months as we rolled those prints all over the country. I mean, I was already spending the money. I know what movies I wanted to make. I wanted to ramp up. It was like killer weekend. I couldn't wait to come in Monday morning and tell my, my huge staff of seven what's going on, and they already kind of knew. So uh, the end of the story is on Monday. I come in around 9 o'clock, and I am just so excited to hear what the grosses are and to let everyone know what's you know what was going on. And I walked in, and this is back in the day again. This is before any Internet, before anything. It was just, you know, fax and a phone call, letters and, and uh, telegrams. So I walk into my lobby. Okay, that's a cool shot. I have to... I, I'm, this story is being broken up. Now, that, that flying through the air shot, another... Dave Allen masterpiece. This is all stop. This is all rod puppetry. But that flying through the air shot, not easy to do. God, look how strong he is, dude. <laughs> That's actually pretty crazy. Uh oh, he is definitely burned up. I was there when they shot this scene. I thought, oh my God, that guy is gross but perfect. So my, my ghouly story ends. So I walk into my office, and there's a receptionist who, who was, I have to say, one of the ugliest women I've ever seen in my life. It was just one of those moments that, you know, nice as can be, but she looked at me and she said, it's bad, it's really, really, ooh. Bad time to tell the ghouly story. This is all so cool. And gross. Now, keep in mind, this is like 92, you know, no one's really seen these movies before. I mean, we, I mean, there were bits and pieces of puppet and doll movies prior to this, and of course the great, the great uh, Karen Black episode of Trilogy of Terror, but uh, this was pretty, uh, pretty out there. So the, my gal, my receptionist, back to Ghoulie, says, it's horrible, it's horrible. I said, horrible, things are incredible. No, no, it's horrible, go into the mailroom. Go into the mailroom, it's really bad. So I go into the mailroom, which we don't really have anymore, and there's a pile of telegrams and letters. And I got this chick who was an intern, and she looked at me, and she was white in the face, and she held up a letter with shaking hands, and she said, they're all like this. And I looked at this letter, and it said basically, Dear Hollywood fucker, 
We have been trying to potty train our children for months, and your fucked up movie has scared them shitless. They won't go in the bathroom. They won't go near a toilet. How dare you? Fuck you, and you burn in hell. And I'm not exaggerating. There were hundreds of letters from parents who obviously the kids saw these commercials, you know, during Saturday morning cartoons or wherever the hell we ran them. And at the end of each commercial, this fucking horrible monster pops out of the toilet. They would not go near the potty. No way. So it was, I felt terrible. I mean, I felt good because we were making lots of dough and it was a big success. But I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing? And hate mails, it's not good getting hate mail. It really feels bad, you know. And, and, and I, there was even from little hate mail from kids, you know. Me no poopy or something. You know, people just were pissed off that, that, that these poor little kids weren't getting to go to the bathroom. So I called my guy in New York, and I said, dude, I said, he says, don't even say it. He said, we're getting the calls. We're getting the mail. Theater owners are getting calls like crazy from pissed off parents. We know it's a problem. We know it's a problem. And I said, well, what do you do? What do we do? He says, well, you got really two choices. You can change the campaign. You know, Ghoulie can be poking its head around a closet or peeking out of a drawer or, you know, looking around a, a bed. Um, and, you know, that happens all the time. Or you can just leave it the way it is and fuck them. You, you know, you, it could be that that original campaign is what really pulled them in. You may be killing the golden goose. He said that campaign could be the reason why people are coming to the theater. And if you stop it and we play the next city, you may have a bad turnout. So you got to make that decision. I said, well, what do you think? He said, I'd just go with it the way it is. He said, the theater owners may be getting the calls, but they're making money. There are lines around the block. So anyway, I did make a decision to keep the campaign the way it was. And the hate mail continued. But we actually had such a wonderful success that it was because of that movie I was able to make... All those movies in the early 80s, it really fueled the pump. It started the, the, the empire role of films like, again, Reanimator and From Beyond and Troll and Dolls and Crawl Space and Eliminators. And it was all because of Ghoulies, really, and uh, that campaign of the Ghoulie popping out of the toilet, you know. And as a little uh, epitaph on this whole story, many years later, I'm doing the road show, which I talked about earlier. And once in a while in the audience, some guy would stand up or girl and say, hey, I was one of those kids. I couldn't go in the bathroom for months. It was awesome. Of course, they enjoyed thinking about it 20-odd years later, but uh, they were the victims of our evil campaign that slipped through the cracks of the uh, MPAA. So anyway, it was a long, crazy story, but um, a lot of fun meeting everyone on the road and talking to literally tens of thousands of fans. This is such a cool scene. You see, I must keep my promise to Elsa. Your advert has not been in vain. Of course, you may let her into drugs. Yeah, I mean, it's like, but you've given you know, when I stop and think of all the things I've done so far and um, all the movies that I've made, going on the road and doing those hundred cities and meeting thousands of you uh, was a real thrill because it, it allowed me to really connect and hear, not just from a few people, but thousands of people you know, what they thought of the movies, where we could improve, you know, the fact that they've enjoyed them over the years, all sorts of things that um, most filmmakers don't hear. So even though I'm on a little bit of a break now because I've got too many movies to make, I'll be out there again. We'll do some of those shows one day soon. Not as many maybe, but maybe we'll do four or five, you know, in key cities and really ramp it up and make it even crazier.
with that. Okay, here's where it gets really nasty. I remember just sitting there watching all these little moments being created. You have to have a lot of patience because the scene plays in a few short minutes, but it, you know, it was a lot, a lot, a lot of little bits and pieces, especially when we came back later to do all the puppet shots. He's in trouble now. This is when the puppets get to pull him apart. This, by the way, these were all shot on a little sound stage, you know, uh, not the bigger shots and the exterior shots. Ooh. And also, speaking of the MPA, a lot of the early Full Moon films had, I mean, we got away with a fair amount of gore, but there were some great shots that we had to lose. And one day I'm gonna have to find them and put them back in. There weren't many, it's not like we lost minutes, we lost seconds, but you know, there are, especially in movies like Reanimator and Ghoulies and um, Trancers, some of the strangest films, there were just these wonderful moments that, you know, we just couldn't keep in there. The MPA would say, you know, if you want your R rating, you've got to cut this out and cut that out. So cool. Once again, we had to do this. And first shot, that probably last 15 seconds. You know, that was probably the most expensive part of the day other than the puppets, because gotta keep in mind, you have a stunt person, they're wearing the suit. That, now that's another CG, I'm sorry, that's another composite shot by Dave Allen. That's what he was great at, you know. How do you do that? Now today, with a computer, far, far easier. Back then, to composite that shot, and he did it, I think, with a background, with a rear screen projection, just amazing. Here's our schmaltzy ending. Anything to go back to the office? No, it's all cleaned up. Now I just want to get as far away from all this as I can. They have the tape, let someone else come up with the answer. I want to know the answer. What happened to the puppets? How is my mother's body? Looking at this movie as I've been talking to you guys now for the last uh, almost hour and a half, it uh, holds up pretty well. I'm, I'm happy with... Uh, you know, this is... Uh, let's think about it. Yeah, 20 years ago. So, a lot of you guys were like little babies. And um, I think it plays pretty, pretty well. And it looks amazing in, 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 on the Blu-ray, just amazing. Okay, here comes the tag. You have to have all these little tags, always. I've always wondered how are we going to pick up the story and how are we going to uh, get torch into some of our future to try to make some sense out of all this. Institute for the mentally troubled top and teens. Good therapy for the little brats. Torch should have just blown her away enough talking. Too much dialogue, lady. That's what I would have done. Just. And if anyone sees anything unusual, well, who'd believe a bunch of people? <laughs> Way too much dialogue. Oh, man. All right. Back 
to the crossroads. Alright, enough. We have children to enchant. Yeah. I think we were planning to do something with this, and I thought, oh, this is just too silly. That's when we went back to World War II and the origin of Toulon coming over to the United States. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm really happy with the script and the, the approach we're going on with uh, Puppet Master Access Rising, which, of course, by the time you guys are listening to this and watching the Blu-ray of Puppet Master 2, we'll have Access Rising out that's coming out around the same time, September, October. So we'll see in these months, uh, from July 16th till then, how well we do. But I really want to, uh, oh my goodness, Cairo children, Taryn and Alex Mann, those are my two older kids who are not kids anymore. When I start looking at these credits, it's uh, daunting. But um, anyway, it's been good uh, just talking to you guys. Uh, usually it's easier when there's two or three people in a room talking about making a movie. I'm just on my own here, but I'm glad I was able to share the stories, um, some of the stories with uh, about Dave Allen, who went on to do other pictures for me, and then of course we we squeeze every dollar out of every uh, everything we could to make the primevals, which is shot, and about halfway through the effects, or maybe two thirds of the way through the effects, poor Dave Allen passed away. So uh, his wonderful partner, uh, Chris. Endicott and I will find a way someday, someday soon, I hope, to get the show completed because it's got just some of the most wonderful, wonderful footage and, and creatures and stuff we'll never see again because there'll never be another Dave Allen and, uh, you know, the whole stop-motion animation world is, is now very retro. So I look forward to that, and it'll probably, the, probably be the next time in several years that I'll do one of these audio commentaries. I'll do it on Primeval's, which... You know, if for no other reason to make Dave Allen happier wherever he is, um, that picture needs to be finished. So uh, glad you enjoyed this, and we will be talking soon.